ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Hello and welcome to another episode of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. Um, I do have a great guest coming up later in the show, Karen Loftus, who worked at WGNO in New Orleans and now she's down in Tampa. And uh, I get her insights on the Saints and Bucks for the weekend. Uh, but first, there were some things that I wanted to touch on uh, before we got to that. Uh, yesterday, Skip Bayless made some comments about Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott admitted that he had gone through depression um, related to the suicide of his brother and um, the isolation from COVID-19. And essentially what Skip Bayless said was that he showed weakness and that his teammates might not have the confidence in him to lead their team. I have not been shy over the last few years in discussing my mental illness. I live with bipolar disorder and I wrote a statement on Twitter today and detailing some of the things that bothered me about Bayless's statement. And I'm just going to read that right now in case you did not see it. I haven't always been open about my mental health because I experienced the stares, the stigma, the misguided advice regarding bipolar disorder. I survived five suicide attempts. I've been in a facility. For more than 20 years, a day didn't pass where I didn't ask to die. The access to help was and is limited, and the people around me had to learn as much as I did. Um, It's a long process in educating your friends and family about how they can help you and they can hurt you in dealing with this. With all of that, I've still been able to lead staffs as an executive um, and experience great success in doing that. At the same time, I stepped into a business built on rejection and conflict, and I'm building my own space. Not that it's ever easy. I had to find the right therapist, and I went through many. I was diagnosed at the age of 30. I'm 45 now. In that time, I've had two quality therapists. Most were just medicine pushers. Others didn't relate to me or my experience. Some don't want to deal with uh, bipolar disorder patients because we can be inconsistent. Finding a good therapist is a hard thing to do in this country. Health insurance doesn't give you a ton of access to um, sessions in the course of a year. The cost is high. Medication costs are high. It's not easy. The right combination of medicines is something that's temporary. It doesn't It has to be constantly evaluated. And those medicines have side effects. And life is full of triggers. And when you live with mental illness, and even the average person, there are things that trigger you. But in mental illness, when you deal with it, particularly me and bipolar disorder, how those triggers uh, affect you and how you respond to them um, can be destructive at times. That doesn't make me weak. I know I need help. We all do to some extent. Anyone who thinks that people who live with mental illness cannot lead others, even in times of intense pressure, doesn't realize how many people around them are doing just that. 
Skip Bayless doesn't get it. He insulted a large number of Americans and he doesn't care. And I believe that to be true because he doubled down on those statements today on first take. He thinks that it's a sign of weakness and that he should have kept it to himself. People keeping these things to themselves is why they don't get treatment. It's why these things eat them up and it's why they end up committing suicide. Particularly amongst, again, poor people, people of color. There's so much stigma attached to mental illness. I've been told to pray it away. I've been told to just get tougher mentally. I'm told that, you know, it's, it's, it's just something that I'm going through. My first suicide attempt was at 12 years old. The age my daughter is now. And every day of her life, I live with the fear that she has what I have, that I have given to her a curse in many ways. The high suicide rate amongst people who are bipolar, the fact that people with mental illness as a whole injure themselves for often they injure others. But the discussion in this country is never framed that way. Mental illness is either seen as a weakness or as a danger to society. And more often than not, the people we hurt are ourselves. What Skip Bayless did was irresponsible. It was destructive. It was callous and it was unfeeling. And he should be ashamed of himself. And Fox right now should be ashamed to be associated with him. Because what he did was go beyond sports and inserted himself into a conversation about how people should live their lives. And you can say, well, that's what you're doing in politics. Aren't you being a hypocrite? And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you again, human rights are not politics. They're not. And as I segue into this next thing, Kansas City and Houston. Kansas City won going away, and I said that they would. I said Kansas City won by 10. That's not the important thing. I don't care about that at all. What I care about is the farce that happened before the game even started. First of all, it's bullshit. The NFL put these two symbol, you know, statements in the end zone. It's bullshit. The lift every voice and sing is bullshit. I don't mean any of this. Mike Tirico's interview with Roger Goodell was pure bullshit. It was 26 minutes of bullshit from both of them. Still showing no understanding of the topic that they were discussing and no interest in actually doing anything to change it. But the most disgusting part is as many players chose to stay in the locker room during the anthem, there were some players after the fact that came out and joined hand in hand and wanted to show a sign of unity. What did the crowd do? Boo. Boo. They booed the players for standing together. And as many have noted today, it just further confirms that none of this is about the flag. None of this is about kneeling. The simple fact of the matter is that there is no acceptable form of protest for black people in this country. Polite protest does not work. Angry protest is not acceptable. Kneeling, standing, turning, praying, whatever you do as your form of protest is unacceptable to white America. Whatever you do. And they have shown that. They know and they believe that they own this game. And that we are 
the black athletes in general, we are as black citizens nationwide, black athletes in this case, are disposable, overpaid, selfish, entitled brats. And that they should be happy with what they have and not waste their time because how could racism affect them because they're rich? The ignorance in those statements don't even need to be addressed. But I will say this, I expect more of it. Because America is getting away from paying attention. They don't want to. They don't want to pay attention. So that's why the rush to get sports back. Because people say, when you hear people say it is my escape, when you hear people say it is my therapy, pay attention to the fallacy of that statement. Sports is not an escape. When you go watch a movie, you know that's a fantasy. Those are people playing people doing with special effects and all kinds of things. If it's drama, it's written. The drama will play out itself as it was written. There's no surprise. It's written. Everything's written. The outcome is determined before you sit down and watch it. It's all been staged. It's completely fake. That's what television and movies are. Football is you being invited to somebody's workplace. To watch them do their job. And those are human beings walking on the field. They are not characters. They haven't been written. They're not parts that they auditioned for. Those are jobs that they earned. And in every part of America, in our workspaces, we do try to bring in some of our own beliefs and things that we care about. I could go look at any cubicle in this country and I could see statements, pictures of things that people believe in. I see plenty of theologians, of people who are not theologians talking about Jesus. I see plenty of, so expertise, you know, I see plenty of non-scientists telling me about COVID-19. But expertise is the exclusive domain of white men. It's the exclusive domain. Only white people apparently can identify racism. Only white people can experience racism. And every part of it else is us trying to divide the country, a country that's never been sewn together. The seams have all, always been ripped. To bring it a little closer to home, you, see, you further see the politization, politicization, excuse me, politicization, politicization, whatever, I don't know. It's, it's Friday. But I'll say this. You can see I was being politicized. <laughs> Close to home. Mayor Latoya Cantrell gives out, goes as a press conference, says state is still in phase, that city of New Orleans is still in phase two, even though the governor's moved on to phase three. As is her responsibility as mayor to determine those things for her population as best she can. I don't always agree with Latoya Cantrell. I don't always think that she's a competent mayor. But in this case, she's absolutely right. We are entering a very dangerous phase. You know, the last few days I've had conversations with, with sports attorney Daniel Lust, who explained liability, the rights of parents and athletes, 
How many parents and athletes in New Orleans understand their rights in New Orleans? How many public school children in this state understand their rights? How many of those parents have been asked to sign waivers that are not worth the paper that they're written on? As we see 20 year olds dying of myocarditis playing football. The falsehood that it does not affect young people is being exposed. There is no doubt when people talk about whether it's competing evidence. That alone should tell you to err on the side of caution. But the one thing we are certain of is that football, among all sports, is listed as the most dangerous to play during COVID. Mayor Cantrell said that cities in phase two. She said all along that while the city was in phase two, that meant no contact sports in the city of New Orleans. That hasn't changed. Phase two is still in effect. That means no contact sports in the city of New Orleans. That's not a debate. There's no argument to be had. There's no explanation to be given. If she declares that they're still in phase two, as is her power as mayor, then you're in phase two. And it is the duty of the mayor to protect the citizens of the city of New Orleans. That's her job. Number one job. Make sure the residents of her city are safe. And who are the most vulnerable? The elderly and the young. So she's doing the right thing and protecting because I would rather have somebody err on the side of caution than have unnecessary illness and death. Because I ask you again, how many is an acceptable number of illnesses and deaths amongst these children? They are not missing out on anything else that all of us are not missing out on. And it is traumatic and it is hard. And I have to deal with this as a parent and a lot of parents out there dealing with it. And you want to have these things. But sports is a luxury. It is not your therapist. If it is, you need to find an actual person to be your therapist. It is not your escape because it is reality. There's nothing fake about it. You can't escape into reality. If your life is that problematic that you have to use sports as an escape, then maybe you need some help. It's not an escape. It is entertainment. It can be a hobby, an interest. It's not an escape. You don't go anywhere. You're not transported anywhere. You're watching an event for three hours. Where did you go? You weren't hypnotized. You watch the game and you enjoy it or you don't. You root for the team or you don't. But all this nonsense about adding this extra value to sports and seeing people talk about there's no racism in locker rooms and seeing people talk about sports is the great uniter. And I'm asking for the day when sports is not in politics. And I've said this and I'll continue to say it until stupid people realize it. Sports has always been political from day one in this country. Sports has been political. The moment you decide to exclude people from participation, it's political. The moment that the federal government decides that these are um, exempt, these, these organizations are exempt from certain law, uh, legal, um, certain, um, excuse me, student labor law, it's political. When these are nonprofit organizations that don't pay taxes, it's political. And all these things that happen on the field are political. And sports loves to tout its successes and celebrate Jackie Robinson Day 
but it doesn't want to talk about all the years preceding it when it would openly ban black players. You can't just take credit for the successes and not deal with the failures. That's why we are where we are. You can't just do that. It's illogical. It doesn't help you grow. When you live in denial, no matter what the facet is, if you don't have a true understanding of who you are and what you are, and that have that ability to deal with those things, then that's the escape. Your life as a whole is an escape because you're escaping from reality because you don't want to face it. Not because you need a respite. You don't want to face it. And facing it is hard and facing it sucks. That's the only way you get better. It's the only way we can get past this. But this doing this Pollyanna, hold your hands, make a video, talk about what we're going to do stuff. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I don't want to see any more videos. I don't want to see any more statements. I don't want to read any more press releases. I want to see these owners put their muscle behind the hustle. Vice versa. Strike that. Reverse it. Put some hustle behind that muscle. They have the power. They have the power. They don't understand. And if Roger Goodell is the voice piece of the NFL, then it's clear they don't understand. The movement for racial equality in this country is being muted. And there are a lot of people who are going to be happy about that. And there are other people who are going to be indifferent. There are a lot of people like me who are saddened by it. The Big Ten lawsuits continue. Nebraska still challenging the Big Ten. That's no surprise there that they want to keep pushing that. So we'll see how that continues to move forward. They say the Big Ten did not follow Nebraska law. Again, it's a private organization that the University of Nebraska gladly became a member of. They knew the bylaws. They understand what they got themselves into. Nebraska doesn't belong in the Big Ten anyway. If they want to leave, let them leave. Pay the exit fee and get out the door. If you haven't come to the conclusion that this has nothing to do with kids at this point, then you're just burying your head in the sand. This has nothing to do with children. This has nothing to do with opportunities for student athletes. This is about adults. This is whole thing is about adults. And the flaws in the system in the way we treat sports in this country, our attitudes towards sports, our attitudes toward athletes, they are being ripped open for the world to see. And we should be embarrassed. I love the games. My heroes growing up were not just athletes, but a significant number of them were not as people, but as athletes. Some of them became heroes as people. As I learned more about them. But ultimately, athlete is a job like any other job. And there are days on your job where you got to bring your own voice to it there are times you have to speak up at work there are times when you notice things that are wrong there and there are times you can you have every right to ask for your employer to have similar values if you're the one generating their wealth 
I mean, it's this is the equivalency that people try to paint between what athletes are and the average person. Well, you've already started off wrong because their environment is nothing like yours. The power dynamic is nothing like yours. So you can't argue it from a space that's like yours because it's not. But we're doing all of this to have mental gymnastics to avoid discussing the basic issue, which is the fight for racial equality in America. And it's a damn shame that Colin Kaepernick can get into the Madden game and can't get into the league as we watch recycled bad quarterbacks get their jobs over and over again. And if you want to say Colin Kaepernick wasn't qualified to be a starter, go read again. Because last night, Roger Goodell lied on national television. And last night, the question that they posed, is Colin Kaepernick interested in playing football? That was already answered. The man told you, tell the 32 teams to stop running. Running from the truth, running from me. He said he wants to play. Roger Goodell was the one who said, we're done with Colin Kaepernick. And he still hasn't addressed Colin Kaepernick. There's just so much to deal with on a daily basis, both with on the court and off the court stuff. And you see how this everything becomes some type of shaped narrative. You know, one of the things last night was that the TV ratings were people say the TV ratings were down for Thursday night football. And in the vacuum, there are those who are going to say, well, it's because the NFL is now woke. They did the same with the NBA. NBA ratings down because the league is woke. I will tell you this. Everything is different now. And I've seen people make this point, and I think it's a valid one. None of the natural cues for any of this is going on. None of the natural cues for football season, basketball season. None of these things are. We would not be playing basketball right now. This way we'd be in we'd be past summer league. All of this is different. It's strange. And last night was the first night in history that you had NHL, Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, WNBA. Everybody was playing last night. Everybody. And some games mattered a lot more than week one of watching Kansas City and Houston and then watching Kansas City blow Houston out. Nobody was going to stay with that game. If the Raiders are down, it's not because of social justice. Because once the game starts, there's no, there's, it's not stopping for those things. Once the game starts, this is all just mythology. If you, people who want to watch the game are going to watch the game, because we've heard everybody say, I'm done with the NFL. And yet they're still answering these tweets on social media, talking about the NFL. I thought you were done. I'm done with the NBA. And yet you're still talking about the NBA. I thought you were done. If you're done, be, stand up and be done. But don't play this game because we know you're still watching. You just want to say you're not. Or you're a bot. But this will be an exciting weekend to end on a higher note. This will be an exciting weekend. College football, NFL football, NBA playoffs still continuing, WNBA season still going strong. Like I said, Major League Baseball getting closer and closer to its postseason as the regular season winds down. So it's going to be a sports overload this weekend. I hope people enjoy it. 
but I also hope that they value it and understand it. And mainly, I hope that the young men and women who are out there playing stay, continue to stay safe. And the ones who have not, the ones who have gotten sick, the ones who have died playing these games, I'm sorry that we failed you. Not, I mean, all of them, I can't say that we take responsibility as a society for every one of these deaths. Some are unavoidable. But those same people who want sports back so badly are many of the same who refuse to follow the guidelines that would have sped up this process. You know, let's talk about sacrifice. Today is 9-11 and people will talk about the ultimate sacrifice and how Americans came together after 9-11. And I will tell you this, you still see the same reframing now. Paul Krugman this morning said that there was no anti-Muslim backlash after 9-11, which is false. These things hurt. These things hurt when we keep doing these things incorrectly. We keep lying about our to ourselves. We lie about our history. We lie about um, what we're dealing with. And you're mad because it's in your face. If you're mad, it's because you're being forced to deal with it and you don't want to. That's why I go back to escapism and therapy. You know what therapy is, right? Therapy is to improve you. That's what therapy is, is to improve you. Mental therapy is to improve how you deal with yourself and how you interact with the world. That's what mental therapy. Physical therapy is to rehabilitate you, make you stronger. Watching stuff can be relaxing, but I don't know too many football fans who for three hours are relaxed watching the game and a team. If you tell me watching a Saints game for three hours is therapeutic and at the end of it, you're more relaxed, you might be more exhilarated. But you're not a better person afterwards. You either enjoyed or you didn't enjoy the entertainment that was presented to you. It can be soothing. That's what, you know, people talk. It's a, it's a, it's a respite. Yeah, it's all those things. It can be a respite. But it is not your therapy. It is not your escape. Because the people on the field don't get to escape anything. And we are all human beings and we bring the sum totals of our lives everywhere we go. And to say that you leave that at the door of your work uh, before you walk in the door of your workplace, this isn't real. Because you're asking things of people that you don't ask of yourself. How many days have you walked in and said, this is going to be a bad day at work? How many times have you walked in with something outside of what you're dealing with in business impacts what you're doing into your workday? Sets you off emotionally, concerned about your kid. Concern about a car accident that happened that morning on the way to work and it messes up your whole day mentally. You bring that stuff into the building. Your house gets robbed the night before you come to work. You think your mind's 100% on work? You experience some hatred. You experience getting profiled the night before you go to a game, the week before you go to a game. And you have to watch and look around your country and see all these things. You think you, that stuff is just easy to let go of and go out and play for three hours? Don't ask people of things that you won't ask for yourself. All right, we're going to take this break and we come back. Um, my good friend, Karen Loftus. We used to call her KC Buckets because um, she and I had a big affinity for Ian Clark at a certain time. We called him IC Buckets. Um, so I called her KC Buckets. Well, now she's in Tampa covering the Buccaneers, so now I guess she's Casey Buck. It's um, 
apologize for the pun. But right after this break, Karen Loftus will be with us on Hard to Pay. Welcome back to Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And today I am so happy to be joined by a friend, a colleague, and somebody that I just admire in this business, uh, Karen Loftus. She should be a familiar name. She was with us at WGNO in New Orleans, and now she has transitioned to Tampa Bay, where she is uh, covering a team that we will be watching this Sunday. Karen, welcome to Harden to Paint. It's been a while since we spoke. And uh, I'm just so happy to get to see you again. I'm so excited about this. I'm like behind enemy lines now. I'm, I, I was looking forward to this because I'm like, this gives me a chance to connect with all of my NOLA media friends and we can talk about this matchup um, and get down to both sides of it. I, I can give you guys the scoop about the Bucks now. Absolutely. And that's what people are really interested in, not just locally, but nationally. This is the team that's the most known unknown. Um, Tampa has on paper uh, maybe the most dynamic offense next to the Saints in the NFL or Kansas City right, on, on paper with all that talent. Just to, just to let folks know, Karen is in the airport on her way to New Orleans. So forgive the ambient noise. You have to, we, we do this, we're on the move all the way. So, uh, but that offense, the thing that, that I think is most intriguing for me is over his career, Tom Brady – is not particularly known as a deep ball thrower. You have two talents on the outside who are great deep ball receivers. How do how does Bruce Arians integrate how is he integrating what Tom Brady has done really well over the course of his career with the outside talent that he has? So I think that's the biggest positive about all of this is you bring in a quarterback that has so much experience as Tom Brady and the respect that he has from Arians that he's going to let him do a lot and have a lot of freedom there at the line. But then you bring him in. And I also think the other big thing is having that safety blanket of Rob Gronkowski because they already have a rapport. Gronkowski is the one guy that he's thrown the most career touchdowns to, 78 touchdown passes to Gronkowski in his career. So they already have a rapport. And then you bring in these new pieces and it's a lot easier for things to come together when you have a veteran presence and somebody who is as good as Tom Brady is, that he is able to bring guys along maybe quicker than they would if it was just a new quarterback to them. So his experience is bringing guys along. They all met up in the summer. Um, you know, obviously a very unique offseason. But Tom Brady got a bunch of the offensive guys together at Berkeley Prep, one of the, the local high schools in Tampa, and really got things rolling. So I think that sort of put them ahead and just sort of got them acclimated to each other and sort of, you know, was beneficial for both sides. The offensive line is the big concern, though. Struggled last year. Jameis was under a lot of pressure. Tom Brady's numbers against the Blitz the last two years have been um, not very good. How have they shored up that offensive line? And I would expect that we're going to see more two tight end sets out of Tampa this year because of the addition of Gronkowski and having O.J. Howard, that you can leave one of them in as a blocker and send the other out into uh, the formation. Absolutely. I agree with that second part completely um, about using the tight ends so much in that capacity to help up front. Um, but the offensive line, Tristan Wirfs, um, their first round pick, Attention. he's a rookie. He's slated to start. 
And Bruce Arians said all through camp that it, they had him, they, they got Joe Hegg from the Colts in the offseason, too, who's a veteran player at right tackle. So Wirfs came in as a rookie, earned the job. Bruce Arians said from the jump that whoever was more prepared was the one who was going to start. So Tristan's the dude. Obviously, we're going to see how that shakes out when it's an actual NFL game, which we know is a completely different speed. Um, but they have Joe Hegg there at right tackle as a veteran presence. That could be more even keel, maybe more prepared for the pace of an NFL game if something, you know, were not to go as planned with Tristan Work. So I think he's going to be really good. Um, the feedback is that he's really smart. He's physically built already like NFL power. Um, he's a huge dude. I don't know if you've seen the videos of him, like, jumping out of the pool. He's, like, jumping yes. out of, like, three feet of water. Yes. He's a freak. Um, but then you think about, you know, somebody like Ryan Ramchak for the Saints who contributes right away. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not out of the realm of possibilities um, just because he's a rookie that he can contribute right away. And I, I think that's obviously the, the hope and the plan for the Bucks. It's certainly being thrown into the fire, though, when you face this Saints defensive line with Cam Jordan on one side, and then you have the Marcus Davenport, the Sheldon Rankins. This was one of the dominant defensive lines in the NFL last year and they're healthy for game one. It's a big test. It is, and that's the, the matchup that everyone's talking about, is, is Cam Jordan up front and then Tristan Wirfs. Like, that's going to be – that might be, like, a welcome to the NFL moment. Um, so, you know, that they're up against somebody really good in the Saints, and that's sort of um, the understanding of everybody. Is All the Bucks know what they have on this roster. Um, but they also know that Tom Brady was just saying, he said – you know, we're doing as much as we can to get ready for this game, but there's that added pressure of a lot of things being new for him and some of the other guys. Um, but there's no room for error. The margin of error against a really good team like the Saints is so small, and to be facing such a high-caliber team for their first game, I mean, that first quarter, there's going to be interesting, you know? You don't, you don't know how things that you're doing at training camp are going to match up in a real game, one that counts with no preseason games, no warm-ups, no practices. It's go. And we saw it last night kind of in the Kansas City-Houston game. Houston is able to get out and jump up, but Kansas City, once it settled into who they were again, got back into their, their rhythm, it was over. The better team emerged. It's hard to say in this game because, A, Tampa and New Orleans have all historically played close, tight games. Then you have the Saints being one and five in their last six openers. You have no real home field advantage because there won't be a crowd in the stadium, which for Tom Brady to be able to audible and to be able to read defense, that certainly helps is something in his favor. If he can, if that slows down that rush by half a second or a quarter of a second, that's all somebody like Brady needs to make a read. And you and I both know firsthand how loud the Superdome can be. The NFC Championship was the loudest thing I've been a part of. I was on the field, had earplugs in, and it was still loud. So not having that, I don't care how loud the piped-in noise sound is going to be. I don't see it being on that same level as it, it normally is. With fans it can't in the build dome. all those so, things. No. Like, I know they have buttons, and I was joking with somebody about this. Like, do they have, like, medium excitement, you know, <laughs> high excitement, extreme excitement? Or if they just ambient crowd noise and they just have the dial, if they just, like, crank it up. I don't know how that works. But it, it's do they have just, the booze that program? evens the playing field in any way, right? Or, the, like, who'd have chance? I mean, all those things. Could you imagine? What are you um, allowed? So what, I, oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if that evens the playing field, which I think it is going to, because, that, you know, before all this happened, you know, you look at the schedule and you're like, okay, well, most people are going to give the edge to the Saints in a home game. Um, but, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how much of an advantage there really is. I mean, aside from not having to travel and just like um, being acclimated to the, to the surroundings. Cause some of these guys for the, for the Bucks may have never played in the dome before. And that's different. Uh, well, let's switch to the other side of the ball with the defense. And that's been the bigger question for Tampa, um, particularly on the back end. They've, they've been very solid up front. Uh, they were, st- they were good at stopping the run last season. Of course you had the pass rush with Shaq Barrett and, uh, Jason Pierre Paul. They're both back. Devin White is another year in the system and he missed games last year. Do, does Tampa feel like the front seven can create enough pressure to help those DBs out? Absolutely. I don't think you're going to see any drop off there. They got everybody back on defense that they needed, and that's going to be a force to reckon with. And I think a lot of times people don't realize how good the Bucks defense was last year because they were so overshadowed by such a bad offense. Like they were fifth in the league in takeaways, but ended up at minus 13 in the turnover differential because of 30 interceptions and some other turnovers to go with that. So I I don't see any drop-off of the defense. I think, you know, the front seven is going to be dynamic. And then the secondary, I think, is where they can see, show some improvements, a point of emphasis that they've talked about is they want to create more turnovers. Some of those cornerbacks and safeties were saying, you know, the times that we've talked to them, they, they were missed opportunities, um, past deflections that could have been an interception, um, or anything along those lines. Just they need to capitalize those on, on those opportunities. And the – creating turnovers and getting interceptions is something that they are, are focusing on. But you have Sean Murphy bunting back there, Jamal Dean. Um, they have some very talented players. An- Antoine Winfield Jr. Um, they, they have some talent. They absolutely do. It's just about maturity, I think, and them growing up as a unit. And that's what it takes for all these teams. Um, the, the, the predictions around Tampa vary wildly. You have people who think that they get go as good as 14 and two. You have other folks who have them third place in the NFC. Um, uh, South internally, certainly the goal is Super Bowl, but I would imagine that Bruce Arians is more concerned about building towards the playoffs than setting some type of particular record mark. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's going to be a matter of, of counting the wins. You know, I, I hate to go into the coach speak, but you know, they're going one game at a time. And if you're doing everything right week in and week out, and you're getting better week in and week out, then all the rest of the stuff is going to come with it. But I mean, I think it just makes things really interesting in the division, the NFC South, like nobody's just handing, you know, the division title over to the saints this year. And I am really excited to see, I mean, just the bucks and saints. I, I I'm over the top excited that, that this is how we are starting the season. It's very strange though, that this could be one of the two last matchups between Drew Brees and Tom Brady. And this one at home, will not be seen by fans. Like, this is historic. If this is the Drew Brees farewell tour that we all assume that it is, one of the most historic matchups in their careers, and there won't be a single person in attendance. It's such a strange thing to think about when you, when you think about it like that. And it's, I'm glad you bring that up because it's like, you know, I'll be at the game, but I don't think about all the fans that – you know, it's going to hit me when I get there yes. that there aren't fans and everything that's different. Because right now it's just like, okay, we're traveling to the game. Um, but to actually be in the dome, and again, coming from a station in New Orleans, like just knowing 
how loud, how crowded, how crazy it is. It's going to be interesting. And even just going around the city, like we were talking about like finding people on the street to, you know, interview and all this. And I'm like, I don't know if people are going to be out. It's black and gold Friday, but I don't know if people run in the streets or if phase two has people, you know, still at their houses. And there's no tailgating um, downtown and all those things. It's going to be a very strange, there's not going to be folks crowded in, in um, champions Plaza. None of that. And even like the things that you, you know, one of the things that's iconic about game day in new Orleans, the whole chant where, you know, you bring it in, it's the who dad eruption at the stadium. None I wonder what that. that's going to be. Yeah. They have to do it in some capacity or maybe yeah. they'll do like a virtual that I, I audio better raise up and echo that. Cause I think fans are looking for that. Yeah. I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It was, that's, it's crazy. So before I let you go, cause I know you got a, just a few minutes left. I do want to get into the coaching matchups. You have some of the best staffs in the NFL on both of these teams, starting with the head coaches who are both outstanding offensive minds. You go over to the defensive coordinators with Todd Bowles, who has been a head coach in the NFL and has had success everywhere he's been defensively. And Dennis Allen has done a great job the last few years with the Saints. Adjustments to me in week one, two, three, four, that ability to be flexible because things that you think are going to be successful may not be as you get your timing back are going to be key. And these are two staffs that are fully capable of making in-game adjustments. I'm glad you pointed that out because that's, you know, there's so much talk about the players and stuff, but these coaching staffs, to your point, are incredible. And, and one thing that I've noticed from being in Tampa Bay, players and, you know, fellow coaches have been singing the praises of Todd Bowles. Every single defensive player we've talked about, his name comes up and they give credit to him. They say he is a mastermind and he not only understands the game, but he understands his personnel and he knows how to put his players in the right situations to maximize their potential. And Shaq Barrett's a perfect example of that with 19 and a half sacks to lead the league last year. So the talent that they have in Todd Bowles and also the continuity of the coaching staff too, like everybody who was there last year with the Bucks is back. And then you have Byron Leftwich, and he seems to have a really good rapport with Tom Brady, too. So um, Byron Leftwich is the quarterback's coach yes. for the Bucs. Um, so, you know, I think that it's just all the pieces. Um, and they've emphasized that about having the continuity of the coaching staff. Players know what to expect from them, which I think is big. And you have that same thing on the Saints. When you're in the same system and you have the same coaches, you, you understand the expectations. Um, which leaves a lot of the guesswork out and just lets the players play because they trust. That trust is there. One of the big conversations that we had um, this summer has been about culture in franchises and that how important that's going to be this year. The Saints have a culture that's bigger than any one player or bigger than even Sean Payton at this point. It is something that is ingrained. In year two for Bruce Arians with this, um, has that culture taken root? Because it seems like it has. That Tampa Bay, it, it seems like for the first time in a long time, going back maybe even to the Dungy years, there is a much more unified approach and voice in Tampa than we've seen in a long time. Sorry, mute button. Um, so I think that's a good point. And I cannot speak to the Bucks in the past, but I just know from the outside looking in, it looked a little bit in shambles. I think when you get a head coach like Bruce Arians, who jives with the front office, with general manager Jason Light, they seem to work together really well and to be on the same page. And it does seem like a shift in the culture, which you know starts at the top. 
And every time we've talked to Bruce Arians or even Jason Light, you know, they talk about how they've worked together. They have the same vision. And Bruce Arians gives a lot of credit to the ownership, the general manager, everybody going up because they are giving him everything he needs. Um, they're going out and getting the players, obviously. I mean, that there's no better example than this entire offseason is what they have collectively been able to do to build this team. And that doesn't happen if you don't have a coaching staff that is aligned with everybody, your general manager, front office, and, and everything above. On, lastly, on the staff, in this year of focusing more attention on disparities, um, you look at the diversity of that Tampa staff, and none of it seems forced or fake. Bruce Arians comes across as genuine to me in his desire to have great coaches, but also coaches who represent his players. How important is that to the unity of this team? Have they talked about it publicly um, as these things have, sh- have happened around them? Uh, just the importance of having this kind of, of, of environment where there are enough people that look like you where you can feel comfortable in discussing these things. The one thing that I've learned is that's apparently the way Bruce Arians has always been. So now that this is something that's at the forefront of diversity when you're talking race or gender, that's just how he's always been. So this Jim is nothing Walter. new mm-hmm. for him, you know, nothing new. Um, he has a diversity and inclusion um, initiative that he has with the Bucks, where the players get to go out in the community and do things like that, something that he started. Um, and he also has women on his coaching staff. Yep. Um, and it, it's just who he is. And it, he, he's very committed to hiring the best person, but also making sure that everybody is represented. And that's, that's the key. I think everybody just wants an opportunity for access and you can't complain about those hires because they're performing. And I think if you give the people an opportunity, some will perform and some won't, but you just want the opportunity. And I think that's the same for us as, as people of color and women in this business too. And I'm glad that that's being brought to the forefront as well. Before yeah, I let It's you- been great to, great to see, great to be able to work with a coach that, uh, you know, like Coach Arians. Before I let you go, I can't let you go without a prediction. I think this is a very tight game. The Saints are, fav- are favored. First time Tom Brady's been an underdog in five years. I think it's a very tight game. I'm not willing to put a number on it, um, but I, I, I give the edge to the Saints slightly because they're returning 20 of 22 starters. Um, that would be my edge. But what, what, what's your thought? You can't get yourself in trouble, give- I know. I know, right? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to have to give the edge to, to Tom Brady and the Bucs in this one. I, I agree with you that it's going to be very close. I mean, both rosters are stacked, so I can't really use that, you know, argument to pick that. I mean, it just comes out down to execution and, um, and matchups, you mm-hmm. know, specific matchups and, and who's going to win their one-on-one matchups. And I think the Mike Evans is going to be a factor, too, um, if he plays or not, because he's been out with a hamstring injury. Um, but if he's in, I'm saying edge to the box. My X factor in this game is Deontay Harris because I think Ooh. in special teams has not been practiced a lot during this because you just can't you can't afford to have those guys running up and down and colliding to, into each other during this. So I think that special teams could be sloppy at, at, at certain junctures, and Deontay Harris is somebody who could take advantage of that. Special teams could be the decider in this game. He quick, quick, too. 
Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> Karen, I, I thank you so much for taking time out um, on your busy day as you, you make your way back to you, one of your second homes uh, in New Orleans. And I hope folks welcome you back with open arms and you have a great time this weekend. Thanks so much, Grub. Always good to talk to you. But not too great. I hope the Bucks lose. <laughs> for Karen Loftus, I'm David Grubb. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hard to Pay. We'll be back soon.